Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study/biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We have in this episode part two of our series on Egypt and the Bible. So hope you enjoy this. And if you would like to support what we're doing here at the show, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate and submit a donation there either one time or support us monthly. We'd really appreciate that. And this is brought to you by all those who uh, support OnScript regularly. So uh, thanks to those of you who um, do that. Uh, that that money goes to support OnScript and Biblical World Podcast. So we appreciate you and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. I am Chris McKinney, your co-host of OnScript Biblical World. I am joined today by my good friend and Egyptologist, and also co-host of OnScript Biblical World, and titles, 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 uh, Mark Jansen. How are you doing, Mark? I'm good, Chris. Always always a pleasure to join you to record these, uh, kind of in my wheelhouse with this Egypt and the Bible topic, so it's going to... I hope be insightful for people, but it's always a good time for me too. Yeah, I mean, it's always so fun to talk about stuff that you're living and breathing all the time when you're in the classroom or in the field or uh, writing and researching. And today's topic, uh, we, I said that it's Egypt and the Bible. This is part two, but we're going to focus in on sort of the last bit of the book of Genesis, but really the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to look at Israel in the the days of enslavement, the land of Goshen. Think about these cities of of P. Ramses uh, that is mentioned in Exodus one, and, and we're going to look at a bit of you know what's going on with this Egyptian background when we think of Israel in the land of Egypt, and this is a fairly hot button issue, uh, really across the board of biblical of biblical scholarship. Because on the one hand, you have uh, lots of scholars who say that everything that we have in the book of Exodus and Genesis is is a much later reflection, whereas there are others, and and Mark would include himself, I'll speak for him, and and myself, uh, who see this as having some real uh, historical background that goes back to the New Kingdom era. And so that's kind of the broad framework of what we're going to look at, and we're going to look at some of these examples of, you know, how we can see these Egyptian influences in the biblical text itself. Uh, does that is that a fair assessment of what we're of where we're going today, Mark? Yeah, yeah. We want to look at Goshen to kind of set that stage, and then get into the early chapters of Exodus and get into some things about Moses. And then I think we'll set it up to kind of end there and do the plagues in part three. Yeah, yeah. Plagues are be uh, plagues are coming up, and we're excited to to get into those. Uh, maybe we can play some theme music from uh, what's what's the movie Prince of Egypt? They have a nice plague song in there, so maybe we'll play that or at least point you to that link. My kids watched that the other night, and then we took a road trip, and my eight year old was explaining to my six year old, "No, those really happened." It's like, <laughs> did did you know that there's a metal version of that? <laughs> nice, I there, there is. That. We'll have to put that link as well, and it's 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 pretty good. 
it's pretty good. So, so where is Goshen? What is Goshen? What is this place that shows up? Goshen is, uh, it can be a little bit tricky to pin down. Um, biblical passages that refer to it, place it in the, quote, land of Ramses, which would, would be the eastern part of the Nile Delta. So, like, we can get pretty good on, like, the general region. And, uh, and we know that's an area that's really popular for Semites entering Egypt with their flocks into trade. And there's new recent archaeology in that eastern frontier that confirms that and, and Egyptian texts mention it. So there's really no debate about a strong presence of Semites in that region during the second intermediate period into the new kingdom and even probably earlier. I mean, certainly earlier, but large numbers from the second intermediate period into the new kingdom. New Kingdom being the uh, time period of the Exodus, no matter which date you prefer. And and so we, we have a general idea of it, but perhaps it'd be best to start with some of the like biblical references to it, just like for, for a second here. It's in Genesis 45 and 46 and 7 mostly, right? But you have it hailed as sort of the best in the land in Genesis 45, 18, even by Pharaoh himself. In 47, verse 6, in chapter 46, uh, verse 32 to 34, it's an it's called like a, it's sort of cited or whatever as an ideal place for shepherds to settle. And then we get this other clue that when Joseph went to meet his family in that same chapter, Genesis 46, he, quote, went up to meet his father in Goshen, depending on how much, you know, we want to make of that phrase. And then in 47, it talks about that the family came from Canaan and are now in the land of Goshen. So these all make it pretty clear that we're looking for something in the Eastern Delta. But the best verse for trying to like pin it down at all, which again, I don't think we can do that precisely, is probably Genesis 47, 11, where, which says, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession of the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh commanded. And this kind of brings together all the earlier references. So it's, it's got to be something in, in the Eastern Delta, probably in the vicinity of another topic and we're going to talk about here soon, Pyramses. And, and this is also really important in, in Genesis 47 because it's sort of a capstone to the Joseph story. If you want to look at sort of the historical geography in that way or just the geography maybe. But Joseph is now provided for them, but that also must include some sort of land since they're, you know, pastoralist. And so we, we can pretty clearly see that this is in the Eastern Delta, and it is ideal for shepherds, and it is, according to these references in Genesis, you know, the best in the land. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. And I would just say, as, a, uh, as an outsider who dabbles in Egyptology with, with friends, that it doesn't seem like it's really much in debate where Goshen is. I mean, even though you don't have this I don't think it appears in extra biblical sources, but you have so much of a description of it. And it's really its location in, if you look back and, uh, you know, the earliest Christian traditions or even Jewish traditions, they all basically point to the same general vicinity that it's, that's this Eastern Nile Delta, uh, Nile Delta region. I did have a question for you based on what you just indicated with the, the idea of shepherds and I'm just going to be surprising because we didn't talk about it before is, you know, I being in the East, being in the land of Goshen, like visiting Tel uh, El Yehudia and other places in that region, it's very lush and very, very rich agricultural ground. 
And just, you know, driving through that environment and seeing uh, flocks of, of various kinds, you know, sheep, goats, livestock. I wonder if that too plays a role in that expression earlier in Genesis where it says that uh, shepherds are hated by Egyptians. Maybe it, if, we, if we think of it that way, not so much that they keep sheep, but the lifestyle of, of Semitic shepherds who spend time in uh, various wildernesses and deserts, if that's the understanding. Because it's almost like when, when you read that, they're like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they're, the shepherds are coming and they hate them, uh, but they're giving them land. But re- in reality... It's that old idea, right? That our texts are almost always biased to the non-nomadic people against the non-nomadics. I mean, like they come from the cities, the texts do usually. And so you've got that sort of tension, right? Where the, the nomads are the marauders and these all these other things. I mean, you can go back to Sumerian texts if you wanted, but they're also trading with them and intermarrying them and hiring them as bodyguards, depending, you know, like, so we know it's always a little more complicated than the, the sort of textual rhetoric gives us, especially in Egypt. My goodness, the, the rhetoric on foreigners versus the reality is a pretty, you know, well-researched topic at this point. But I'll share just an anecdote, if I may, even though it's totally anachronistic. But have you been on a dig where nomads came around? Or, or I'm sure you have. But my first excavation was at Tel Borg on the border of the Delta and Sinai. Right. And so uh, the closest, I guess Ismailia would be the closest like major city today. It's still like maybe 40 minutes to an hour away. Um, and, I, you know, dug there with my first time as a student of Jim Hoffmeyer's Trinity at the time. And there was so many things that were like mind boggling to me at 25, you know, maybe I was naive. But like one of them was, so it's a salvage site, right? They found it when they were bulldozing for the canal and it's a new kingdom fort or two, I should say, forts. And as part of it's a burial. And then there's like a, some reed hut remains of ash reed huts that probably nomads that burned them seasonally and then, you know, leave. But one day I'm digging, you know, or, or whatever. And here comes this guy with his herd and he just goes right through the square. He is going where he wants to go. He and his family have been doing this for who knows how long. This is the route. I don't really care what these Americans are doing. He was nice. He was waving. He was happy, but he wasn't about to like go around the site. Like that was not on the table. Yeah, he's like, put that sheep dung in your pottery basket. Yes, like, you no, go you ahead and analyze that. Right that. You know, write this down, <laughs> student. Right, and so I say that to say, you know, they're going to do what they need to do even today, and it's not hard to imagine a similar thing happening with pastoralists in antiquity. Right, like, these are the watering holes. This is the pasture land. This is what. We've been coming to Egypt for however long, seasonally. Here's our stuff. Do you want any? We're going to leave. You know, like th- this is just their way of life. And like it's 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 effective because they know that route, right? Like that's how it works. And I think, um, you know, when you talk about where they're settling in Egypt, they're going to go where it works best. And places that the Egyptians aren't worried about actually, you know, growing barley or whatever. Otherwise, they wouldn't have given it to them in the first place, right? So it's like, when the Bible talks about being the best of the land, it means for pastoralists, not, oh, they're right on the river, you know, like that would be absurd. So I think we got to kind of put that phrase in context too. I suppose we should talk 
for a minute, not to be too nerdy, but we are definitely nerdy, uh, about the etymology of the word Goshen itself, which is where this gets tricky because there's not a clear, obvious Egyptian term that it derives from. Like we'll talk about some of the, you know, like in, some of the stuff with Moses has some like real obvious loan words in there, but Goshen is trickier. Like Redford thought it derived from Gesem of Arabia, which I think has been largely uh, rejected at this point. Or Sarah Grohl has a really good suggestion. She makes it kind of cautiously, which I can totally respect. But I think this is probably the best one, which is to connect it to the Egyptian term Gesem, like G-S-M, which refers to a body of water in uh, Papyrus Anastasi 4. Like it, it says something like the stormy lake makes waves, meaning the lake being the word Gesem. James Hoke, who's one of the foremost Egyptian hieroglyph grammarians, thinks it's a Semitic loanword in Egyptian texts. And Bitak sort of follows Grohl's suggestion. So there's some building momentum for this idea of sort of waters and possibly even like stormy waters as an idea for it. Um, so that's just sort of one theory that I think is gaining a bit of traction, but it isn't. It isn't really easy to pin down. And if it was, we could do better than just sort of the broad region that I'm suggesting. So I just want to kind of note that. But it's it would be sort of dangerous to be too much more specific than that with it at, at the moment, I think. I, I would just add one um, one point of clarification for those who've, who've you know kind of read through the Old Testament and maybe encountered this term, because there's actually two Goshens in the Bible. Um, one Goshen is the much more famous one, which is in the area of the Eastern Nile Delta. But there's also a, a Goshen that is both seemingly the name of a town and the name of a region in the southwestern hill country, kind of on the edge of the hill country of Judah and the Negev. And that gets mentioned in Joshua chapter 10 and Joshua chapter 11 as regions that that Joshua conquers. So, for instance, there's this classic one in Joshua 11:16, where it says, Joshua took the hill country, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the Shvelah, the Aravah, and the hill country of Israel and its Shvelah. Now, why exactly those are the only you know few references we have to it, and it's not really referenced uh, elsewhere, it's hard to say. Um, one possibility is at least for the the hill country, and perhaps also, um, you know, Mark just outlined, you know, the difficulty of, of of nailing it down. Goshen, actually in Hebrew here, it seems to come from Geshem, which would be rain. And this would be the last area uh, in the southern hills where you would get some of that rainfall. It's kind of sort of right on the area of the watershed. And if Egypt is to have rain, um, it's mostly along the you know the lower area of Lower Egypt. It doesn't doesn't get it nearly as much. In fact, the one day that I spent in in the Nile Delta area, it actually rained that day. Um, so maybe that has an outsized influence on me. But uh, just just as a point of clarification, there that these Goshens, the ones in in Joshua, are not the same as what we read about the land of Goshen. Uh, they're separated by a great distance. So, so Mark, what's going on within the land of Goshen? Do we have some other names that are mentioned there, like P. Ramses and, and others? What, what can you tell us about those? Yeah, so if we want to now jump to the book of Exodus itself, the key verse here, uh, well, there's a bunch of them in, in chapter 1, 
I mean, we'll, we'll come back to the new king, I guess, when we talk more chronology. But I want to take us to uh, verse 11. And people who have been following the debate about the chronology of the Exodus will, will know this verse. But it says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And here's the key part. They built for Pharaoh the store cities Pithom, and most English translations will say Ramses, sometimes spelled with two A's. And these two cities are very important, especially the latter one there, Ramses, because in, Egypt, in Egyptology, we call it Pi Ramses, which just means house of Ramses. And that was used very, very narrow window of time, about 150 years, and basically perhaps started by Seti I and then finished by Ramses the Great, hence the name Pi Ramses. And he ruled 1279 to 1213 according to the, the sort of standard or more widely accepted Egyptian chronology. Definitely don't want to get into that debate here, but that would mean that they must have been there, the Israelites, that is, working for the Egyptians in that reign of time. And then fast forward about, again, 150 years or so, and the city is moved. Many of the blocks are reused from a site known as Kantir in modern Arabic. That's where Pyramses was originally located, it's moved just a few kilometers away to the more famous later city of Varus. And that is because the branch of the Nile that Pyramses was built on dried up. And so a splendid Ramesside capital on a dried up branch of the Nile is no splendid capital at all. And so the Egyptians, ever ever the uh, Earth Day enthusiasts, recycled the blocks, right? They, they do their part. No, but they really do recycle blocks all the time. I mean, why wouldn't you? You only have so much stone that's good building stone and then it's most of the, the the material from there ends up out of varus and this is great for us because if the entire account back to some text critical things if the entire that's an important word here account was written much later you would wonder how in the world they got the name of this narrowly used time period wise egyptian northern capital Right. At least even if, if so, if you don't believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch, whatever, but even at the very least, some source there has that detail really well. Because they would never have known to call it that if they wrote the whole thing without good sources, say, in the exile. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a marker of authenticity and a clue to win. But we'll talk about the win some other time. Let's just put some dates to this, Mark. So I think that if I'm remembering correctly... Correct me if I'm wrong, but Kantir, you know, ancient P. Ramses, is occupied from the early part of the 13th century, and maybe there's possible or slightly earlier stuff, but the main building projects that we have going on there is from Ramses the Great, Ramses the Second. Maybe, and there's also evidence, you know, Seti starts this, but the main thing, so this would be early, early 13th century, and then it falls out of um, use based upon the reasons you mentioned minutes ago in the, in the 11th century. So it's, it's, it, and so they move back to a, a Varus, which is basically where the earlier Hyksos capital was located. They move the materials there anyway. And so it, that's, that seems to be, those are the, those are the chronological details that are important because for that to make sense in the writing of the book of Exodus, it would mean that they would have to know what the name of Ramses was at some point right after they would basically for for an early date exodus to work they would have to have written an update they had had to be an existing text 
you know, that, that mentioned something like Avaris, which is what the capital was in the region, that they would then have to update to be Ramses in a time period where no one really thinks any textual updating was happening. That is, you would the, expect them to call it Tanis, like it, yeah. they, they do later, like the prophets do. Tanis, Zoan, Zoan, yeah, yep. And we should note too. I don't get too far ahead of myself, but for whatever it's worth, there's no debate at all amongst Egyptologists that Ramses and Exodus 111 is the way that they would write Pi Ramses. Like the etymology of Goshen, still up for debate. The etymology of of Ramses here in Exodus 111, no debate. The debate is about what they knew and when they knew it. And, you know, can we squeeze Ramses into a different time period? There's people doing these kind of things. But in terms of the meaning of the terms, there's no debate that this is a reference to Pi Ramses in Exodus. Uh, so I think that's that's certainly worth noting uh, real quick here. And then I think it's worth maybe going over just really quick the history of excavations, because that's really what's interesting, I think, about this whole discussion. So nearly a century ago, an Egyptian archaeologist named Mahmoud Hamza excavated at Kintir after a farmer basically kicked over a block it had writing on it. I love how the best stuff is like that, right? Like we do all this survey, we do all this work, and it's like, you know, a guy just doing his daily thing. Anyway, uh, Hamza's excavations revealed a pretty impressive city. Like this is a big place. He's got a royal palace. There's lots of inscriptions. Heratic ostracons, which contain the name Pyramses, like potsherds with writing in Egyptian cursive is what that is. Um, and then there's a really important publication by William Hayes on the glazed tiles from Kantir, concluding that they're from the Ramesside Palace there. And then you had subsequent work by a relatively famous Egyptologist, Levi Pavashi, and, uh, and he found Basically, his conclusion was it's like virtually unanimous that Kantir is Pyramses. And there's ongoing work going there now under Edgar Push and uh, Henning Frenzmeyer uh, with UCL Qatar that confirms that Pyramses was a pretty massive ancient city, as you would expect of a Ramazide capital. Again, more foundations of the palace. They've even got like a gold dusted, I think is the way they sort of phrase it. Um, flooring, like like the version of it, but, you know, like gilded would be, but it's a floor, so it's not gilded, if that makes sense. Stables large enough, and they estimate this to support, uh, I think it was 400 and something chariots, 460 chariots, or horses, I mean, uh, so not that many chariots, but still impressive. A foundry for the production of bronze, and a bunch of stuff related to glass production. So, and then they think one of the first chariot garrisons anywhere in the Near East that's like associated with these workshops. So it's a major complex. And so that's, I think, worth pointing out. Like at first it was like, nah, there's not enough there. Now it's like, eh. It's not deep because it's been so frequently reused and they've done magnetometry and all these things. But they've got a lot of finds that point to serious industry taking place there too. Right. And, and so I think the two main takeaways... And just so we have, because we don't have a map uh, for listeners, but th- these places are all fairly close to one another. Avaris and Ramses are, are very close to one another. And so you can see how the, the hydrology, you know, the change of the, the of, of this branch of the Nile uh, affected things. But, but even Zoantanis, it's further away, but not that far away. So there's obviously a, a desire to have an important regional center that at various points becomes the official 
residence and capital of the reigning pharaoh at different times in uh, Egyptian history. And this is one point where I, I, I think that it's worth bringing up. Okay, let's let's just compare and contrast the 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 early date and late date when we talk about where the Egyptian pharaoh would have been in terms of his main residence in the 13th century versus the 15th century. And there's those, uh, and there's a debate even among early date proponents, whether it's Thutmose III or Amenhotep uh, II. But in, in either case, and, and correct me again if I'm wrong, but it seems like their primary residence was actually in, in Upper Egypt, which would be the, 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 the capital where their main residences were, where it was in Thebes, in Luxor. So you almost have to, uh, again, it's not the silver bullet that destroys the whole view, but you, but to make, to make the most sense, you would have Moses going up and down the, the Nile. I've made that trek on a night train. It, I did not sleep on it all. Now, Moses you know, could have got around, but it makes much more sense, in my opinion, that if you are depicting this event where Moses is constantly going back and forth between the Pharaoh, who unfortunately is not named in the book of Exodus, um, that it would be right beside Goshen. And actually, Ramses itself would be in the land of Ramses and yeah, on the right edge within the <laughs> land of Goshen. Yep. So it makes sense that you're essentially putting um, the Israelite uh, who are slaves at this moment, Moses and the location of P. Ramses, which is the capital, together. It's not. It, it's a small part of, of Egypt, but it's a very significant part and they're right beside each other in the right time, in the right place, which is a, a problem that's not often brought up in this discussion of... Because um, Moses has to talk to Pharaoh several times. Several times, yeah, several there's times. There's no way he's going all the way to Thebes. Yeah, we've all seen Charlton Heston, you know, going and to... Pharaoh's not just going to, like, hang out at a fort forever. So where is he? Well, he's in this capital city. I should also note, too, when... Uh, so the that sort of second-to-last wave of excavations by Edgar Push's team... Um, I think I'm saying that right. Maybe not. But they they found the magnetometry showed about 10 square kilometers for the size of the city. And now the UCLA Qatar folks are seeing that it might be as many as 15 to 20. Right? They just kind of keep expanding it. And a lot of that, at least as of a couple years ago, when I prepared the essay on this for the Lexham Geographic Commentary on the Pentateuch, um, it was you could see you could find this stuff on the UCLA Qatar website. So it's, I mean, it's subject to peer review. There's not been pushback. I mean, this is a huge city by ancient standards. It's the kind of place that a pharaoh would be in residence, not just, you know, making the rounds. And so he'd be there for long enough in the Ramesside era, uniquely for that 140, 150 year window. He'd be there for Moses to visit close enough to Goshen for that to be, let's just use the word plausible. Right. And so it's a really good fit. And it's again, it brings together a lot of chains of data, too. I mean, we should mention that a little bit more. Right? You have the archaeology, the Egyptology, the uh, the linguistics within the obviously the etymology and then even the historical data, if you want to call it that, where they, they leave the city. And that happens around 1130, just to kind of reiterate that, uh, because the Pelusiac branch dries up and now you've got geology. <laughs> right. When you want to talk about that. So. Pi Ramses is a really wonderful nugget in Exodus 111. And I suppose we should mention Pithom, though that won't take near as long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, maybe just briefly, because you do have these other two cities that are mentioned, Pithom and uh, Sukkot, which are around here, which most would identify today. And this is, 
I would say another fairly new advancement that Pitom is associated with Telbertaba and uh, Sukkot is related to Telmashkuta. Like even if you look back uh, several uh, you know decades ago, these this was the opposite view that 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 Pitom was associated with Maskuta, which was a, a problem for for a historical exodus because it you know it didn't necessarily have the the data that you'd want. But it now seems that there's good evidence for New Kingdom activity at both places, uh, Rataba and Maskuta. And, and Rataba always had everybody knew had in situ Ramesite remains good clean context. You know, and, and the etymology was never in dispute either. Pithom is house of Atum. P like P Ramesses, Atum Tom in the Hebrew. So Per Atum, house or temple of Atum, who's associated with the region, especially with the Wadi Tumalot, where those sites that you mentioned, uh, Muscuta and Rataba are. And so again, the region fit is like dead, 100% debate is dead, I think. The specifics of the sites is getting more clear as more work is done. Um, and again, Hamza was at it again, helping to demonstrate that Rataba was not Pi Ramses, but Katir, which means Rataba is Pitham. Um, and I think that's going to end up being why it has been pretty much widely accepted. I don't think there's a ton of uh, reason for us to go much further with I, that. I would just, I would just say that uh, one point that's worth noting is that if the Exodus event was something that was invented or at least is reflective of the 7th or, or 8th, 7th century. I mean, the earliest dated textual references we have come from the book of Hosea. You know, it's just mid-8th century where we have discussion of the Exodus, which unfortunately, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, don't include uh, a lot of topographic details. They, you know, they just talk about the Exodus in, in, in different, you know, in different terms. They don't mention Ramses or, or these other, uh, these other references, but we do have some in the Psalms, like Psalm 78, which talks about the fields of Zoan or, or, or Tanis. And there, they're obviously updating it to reflect that time frame. And, and so what you actually have is recorded in the book of Exodus, a, a thing, you know, a cultural detail that can only be reflective of a specific time period. Whereas in Psalms, when by that point, Psalm 78, uh, you could relate that to Isaiah 19 and uh, chapter 30 also, where, where Tanis or Zoan is the main uh, royal center in, uh, in lower Egypt. And so it's a, it's a very clear difference between what you have going on in Exodus and what you have going on in later biblical literature. And I think it's, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. It's probably something we could also talk about when we wrap up the Exodus in a couple episodes from now on this series, but I'll kind of tease it right now. I think it's one thing that frustrates me a little bit about the cultural memory view. Um, like Ron Hendel has that for those who listen to that episode and working with Ron was, 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 uh, was good for the five views of the Exodus book. And I think he does a pretty good job of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater entirely on history, at least within that uh, argument in that book. But I think a lot of the cultural memory proponents basically relegate Moses and the rest of the Exodus story to fiction because they see things like the layers of memory and the modern in their day, Psalm 78, the modern terminology being used. And so they think it must all just be totally distorted. But really, as you point out, that's just updating it for the audience at that time. It doesn't make it ipso facto fiction, it being the Exodus. See what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think one way to put it would be like this, that we can never prove 
the Exodus happened. We can never prove that Moses walked in and, and talked to Ramses II in, uh, even if we found the palace of Cantir, unless, uh, you know, we, we could never get to that point where we're going to prove it. But all of the, um, let's say, the, the setting of the stage, which would be both the geography and the archaeology, uh, as well as the, the, the hydrology of this region, match very closely in the 13th century in the area of Lower Egypt with what you have in Exodus 1 and, and towards the end of the book of Genesis. And it doesn't really match a different period. It doesn't match uh, the earlier part of the New Kingdom era because of the problems that we mentioned where the main residence was in, it was in, in the south, in, in Upper Egypt. Uh, and it certainly doesn't match a later period where the names are different and, and slightly moved around. And so I think that's just an important detail, whether or not you consider it to be ultimately historical or not, the setting of that environment seems to match very closely. Right. Yeah. And this is a good time to sort of transition into Moses and some of that discussion too, I think. But I want to kind of point out as we get into that, it's really important. I tell my students this fairly often that we ask the right questions of archaeology, especially archaeology in in regions like Sinai, and that we ask the right questions of ancient history. And like people want definitive proof of Moses. Like, what would that be exactly? Moses was here on a rock. That's just going to be dismissed as a forgery. It's going to be, oh, it's it's just a common name. It's not that Moses. I mean, like, even if we had this, you know, hypothetical piece of evidence, how much would it really prove? Yeah, it, it reminds me of, you know, go back to the Prince of Egypt, one of my favorite parts in that movie. And they really do a great job. I, I think that that's oh, yeah. a, for what it is. It, it's, the, it's a better version of the Exodus than any of the rest of the movies. Yeah, it's a be, way better than um, we could do a whole one. What's the, the recent one with Christian Bale? Oh, oh yeah, skip it. It, it, was, it was terrible. Um, it wasn't, it was unwatchable. And not just because the way they handled it. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But I, I just remember that towards the end of the film, when he goes to Zipporah, his wife, and she says, I'm not going to leave my father's faith. And uh, Moses says, it's a good thing you're not giving up on your faith. You'll need it for the days to come. And it's totally this modern perspective on what, religion. It's just, it's just so funny. But what I was going to say for the Prince of Egypt is the proof that they give is in the, in the movie is they do this really cool thing where they, uh, where the young Moses walks into a palace and on the walls is a, uh, a depiction of the Pharaoh. And it's meant to be, I think, Seti giving all of the Hebrew babies and feeding them to the crocodiles. And it's, it's actually really cool because of course it's never been found, but you do see all these depictions of crocodiles in, you know, different Egyptian sources across periods. And so it, it brings together, you know, if you were to find evidence, it would look something like this that hasn't been found. It's not historical, but it's kind of just a fun uh, thought process. Yeah. And I mean, this is the, this is the same, if you subscribe to, Ramses as the pharaoh of the Exodus, as I do, and I know you do. This is the same guy who took what was at best a stalemate, the Battle of Kadesh, and spun it into this great victory. And the Hittite king finds out about it. And he's like, hey, what's the deal? You didn't take the city, right? Like, he's not going to memorialize this whole story with his, his you know, Hebrew slaves or whatever escaping in whatever number there is and however it went down. It's just not the kind of thing they were going to memorialize. But he'll do everything he can to keep it from getting out really. But that's, I mean, that's just kind of a miscellaneous point with Moses though. I think a lot of these, these sort of really important 
like philosophy of history and even archaeology sort of questions come up. And I think he's a really good case study for some of the managing of expectations for ancient data, if I can put it that way. Right. Like the obviously Moses is an ancient leader par excellence in the Bible. Right. Like he's depicted as a do it all leader. And a lot of interpretations by scholars sort of anachronistically say that that's impossible. I mean, one who's she's a really great scholar. Right. But she compares him to George Washington and says he's basically too good to be true. And it's like George Washington is in no way, shape or form the starting point comparison for Moses. And also, does that make George Washington fiction, by the way? <laughs> George Washington is great. I mean, as a historical figure, he had some you know shady parts, but so did Moses. Uh, it, it, like, I, you read like that, the story. That, and I'm like, that comp doesn't do what you think it does in the first place, but we need to use the ancient data. Right? So it's like, it's kind of maddening because Moses gets to be so popular that even really credible scholars in lots of other ways will make these bizarre statements about him. Yeah, I would just say, as someone who is also dabbled in uh, some U.S. history in my teaching career, reading through uh, the biographies about Washington, you're like, wow, he is really too good to be true. <laughs> like, he's just an, a fantastic leader. And so your point is, it is exactly right, is one, we shouldn't necessarily use these later sources to, or later historical things to compare. But if, if you were, it, you know, it fails on its face because because Washington was such an extraordinary person and leader that, you know, you can imagine comparing him to, to someone like Moses, at least in the biblical text. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I get the point of the comparison, but I think it's sort of silly just because of the sheer gap in time, but it also doesn't make the point that Moses is fiction anyway, because Washington wasn't. Um, so it, it, things get kind of weird with Moses sometimes where I, or like, I mean, Sigmund Freud writes his final book, Moses and Monotheism, and basically says he's a pious myth. And I'm like, why are you writing about Moses, Freud? You know, like, this is his last book. So it, it's just, like, he, by whatever else you can say about his incredible career, he's not an Egyptologist or a biblical scholar or an archaeologist, right? So we need to look at external data from ancient sources and try not to be too anachronistic with modern sort of Western approaches to ancient Near Eastern material. You know what I mean? I mean, the Washington thing's kind of fun, but I think we can be a bit better than that. Um, and I think a lot of the skepticism about Moses and the Exodus as a whole comes from, I would say, like three things, which have varying levels of validity. So the first would be this idea that there's a lack of substantiating archaeological evidence from Egypt and the Sinai, which we'll get to in a minute. The second would be the idea that it's myth or distorted cult by cultural memory. It's, again, we'll talk about that in a future episode a lot more, I think. But And then the third would be that idea that it's all hypothetically written really late, so they don't have any reliability and it's just all theology. And while it is definitely primarily theology first and foremost, there's plenty, I think, of authentic history in it. But for today, at least, I want to kind of just focus on that first point and about the archaeological evidence and then talk about the Egyptology side of this when it comes to Moses. So the absence of this uh, sort of like, I don't know, corroborating evidence leads a lot of skeptics to say, oh, it, you know, the Exodus didn't take place. Moses didn't exist. But I think this idea is pretty exaggerated. Um, Richard Elliott Friedman, who I would have issues with some of his views on the Exodus, but he's an ally on this point, notes that 
skeptics assert that we've combed the Sinai and not found any evidence. And that's just not true. There have not been major excavations in Sinai, right? Except for some of those border sites that are coming up here lately. But like it's been subject to surveys, right? But are those going to get the kind of data that people are looking for? Yeah, I, I think that's it's, such it's a... just overstated is all. Well, I mean, if actually, if you found archaeological evidence, uh, look, you can take it one way or the other and say it's, you know, non-historical or whatever. But if you found archaeological evidence of large encampments and this type of thing, it actually would kind of go against the nature of what the biblical text is describing, which is a, uh, a, a people that seems to be somewhat semi-nomadic in the land of Goshen, maybe settled down a bit, leaving there making their way through a wilderness where you would never build architecture or cities or leave any archaeological evidence and then slowly migrating across that to, to the land of Canaan. So, I mean, I, I really don't know what you would ever expect to find. And if you did find anything, it would be from different periods. And, and the, the periods that we do have are Nabataean, uh, Calcolith. I mean, they're, they're, they're periods where they're writing. They're writing on the on the wall. I mean, so just because they didn't, mar- you know, describe what they were doing when they were passing through, it, it's just you wouldn't expect to find that type of evidence anyway for a nomadic people. And the best evidence is there are nomads there now, and you don't find archaeological evidence of them. Um, so and, and the logistics of digging there and the modern politics, I mean, all that makes it very difficult. So it's just unrealistic to expect a bunch of really great precise archaeological data out of the Sinai when it's not been fully excavated really hardly anywhere. Even the mines at like Sirabit, you know, are, are that really fully excavated. The writing gets all the attention there. So I think that's sort of the first point on Moses. And then like, okay, well, why aren't there Israelites in the Delta? Well, there's Semites in the Delta. And I guess my question is what material culture wise, would we expect the Israelites to do differently than the other Semites at that point in history? And everybody agrees there's Semites there. Well, and then you also add in the factor that's right there in the biblical text is it talks about a mixed multitude uh, of Egyptians and other peoples going up with Israel. I mean, I think one of the the key points in this whole discussion is the presupposition of like an ethnically pure Israelite group that's that's leaving Egypt and somehow expanding outward. Egypt, I mean, Israel as a as a group, you have these like typological statements in Genesis, which are clearly typological, where you have them coming down with 70 people. And that's clearly meant to be a um, a response to Genesis 10, you know, that you have the nations divided up among these 70 groups, these 70 uh, sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so when Jacob goes down with 70, he he's bringing together God's bringing that moment where they're coming into the to that spot as this new 70. And it's actually really interesting. Some of the people that are in that number of 70 are dead in the narrative of, of Genesis. They're, they're, you can point to the sons of, of, of Judah in Genesis 38, um, which is kind of the X-rated version of, you know, that's the R-rated version of Genesis. But they're dead and they're included in the 70 that go down to the, to the land of Egypt. And so the point is, is when they come out, they're described as this great nation, this this larger people, but they're also described as having all of these other 
um, parts that get attached to them. And that didn't stop um, when they're in Sinai or when they're in the land of Canaan. Right. They're notoriously bad at not doing that. That's kind of the whole point of the rest of the Old Testament. It's that they failed to come out and be separate, even though that was the command, especially idolatry and, and I guess intermarrying and all that. Yeah, that's a great point. I think some other things, maybe just walk through Moses's life kind of to, to as we head to wrap in this episode. So as you know, but make sure our, our listeners know, one of the reasons for skepticism about Moses is the birth narrative, right? And this idea that, of course, you know, Pharaoh's commanded the midwives to kill all the baby boys and Moses's mother places him in a basket and he floats down the river and he's just fine. And then Pharaoh's daughter picks him up and he's raised in a palace. Obviously, at first glance, it does seem too good to be true, right? I mean, I can totally understand anybody, you know, post-enlightenment on, everybody who reads that that doesn't know the ancient Egyptology data thinks, oh, well, that's a cute little romantic story about Moses surviving that. I mean, that's fiction. You know, like, I see why people would jump to that initial conclusion there. But the weird thing is, this is just some a, a motif that ancients love. The other famous one is, of course, Sargon, who's this larger-than-life Akkadian king who survives a very similar story. There was a priestess who wasn't supposed to have children, and, you know, so she puts him in a river, in a basket in a river, and he survives because of the gods intervening and all these things. And But yet nobody would say, because of his legendary birth narrative, that Sargon is fiction. So whatever else is going on with that motif, it is actually not grounds to call an ancient figure fiction, even if it is sort of hard for us to sort of stomach as reliable. I don't know how else to word it, but it's not fiction just because of that. It is, in fact, a popular ancient motif. What's really interesting about Moses, as I get super nerdy again, is that story that there's like a just a few verses there that contain, this is an Exodus chapter two, um, verses three through six, mostly, that contains several Egyptian loanwords in the Hebrew. Another neat marker for authenticity, and here I'm using Jim Hoffmeyer's work to kind of summarize it quickly. The word basket, Hebrew tabat, derives from the Egyptian word jabat, clear as day etymologically. Um, the word translated bulrushes, again, in Exodus 2, 3 through 6, is or papyrus sometimes is probably it's it's a little less certain but it's also probably from gome in egyptian though that one's not quite as obvious the hebrew word for pitch zafat in only appears in exodus here and in isaiah 34 9 and cognates are restricted to syriac sorry syriac and arabic but there is an egyptian word jafat that he thinks is a potential in, you know, source of that. The Hebrew word suf, which is famous for this, read, you know, sea of reeds, suf, reed, is unquestionably the Egyptian word chufi. That's probably another future episode thing for us. We're going to have seven episodes by the time we're done with this five. Got to have series, seven or 40. Yeah. Seven or 40, your, your choice. Yeah. And then the word for river is really interesting. It's not the obvious one for the Nile, but the normal Hebrew word nahar. It, that that river is not that word is not used. Excuse me. Um, rather, it uses heor, which is a possible transliteration of Egyptian itru. That one's again a little less certain. So there's six total. This is the last one. 
And then Safah is the river, the brink or bank related to the Egyptian word Sapah. So I would say four out of his six are pretty certain or, or, or fairly certain. And then two he admits are kind of tricky. But even if it's only four in a cluster of like three verses about one narrative using words like basket and pitch and riverbank and having them be Egyptian terms is really interesting. Again, if it's all made up later, why do they know these Egyptian terms? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's it's really interesting. And if I just go back to your to your point about the the Sargon and, and the the boat, you know, the, the, the basket episode, um, just to give a little bit of context, that text comes it's called the Birth of Sargon tablet. It comes from Ashurbanipal's library in Nineveh. So it's 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 seventh century um, from that time period, but it's likely reflective of some type of uh, text that is composed in the eighth century related to Sargon II, who is a, a great king of the Assyrian Empire. He's a, he's a fantastic, really interesting character in his own right, but he is not writing about himself. He's writing about Sargon of Akkad, Sargon the Great. And so what the question is, is that is he writing and kind of developing these own traditions in the 8th century about someone that he is named after? Or is he uh, developing on a earlier tradition? And I've looked at this somewhat closely, and you can see that uh, in the text that date to the early second millennium, there are references to Sargon of Akkad, which may even by then be somewhat legendary in, in terms of the epic literature, that deal with him as a baby, that deal with him and in this context of having this kind of just across the board human motif of a of a hero legendary king hidden in his youth, which you can see in Greek myth, which you can see in all these other myths. So I, I, I would say is, yes, there's a lot of similarities between what you have in that Sargon tablet and what you have in the birth nar- narrative of Moses. But those same similarities apply to Greek mythology. They apply also to Sargon of Akkad, as he was thought of in, in the early second millennium. And so the fact that you have these these details of Egyptian background and these wider motifs that are used, it, it's just hard to know and, and nail it down. I mean, uh, you could say that you know part of Exodus is historical, and they're inserting this about a Moses to make him like Sargon the uh, Second. But Sargon the Second is not even trying to be like himself; he's trying to be like Sargon, right, Sargon the First. You know, you're playing all these you're playing all these chronological games, and it it becomes complicated very quickly. And, and I'll, I'll move on with, from the birth to his upbringing after this point, but at or co, you know, two points. At, at the very least, you either have really good authentic memory of the Egyptian terminology by the time it's written down, like a source that they were using, or they just remember it, which is a good thing for the authenticity, right? Or you have, and it could be a combo of these things too, or you have just a motif that ancient cultures, the region over, let's just stick with the Mediterranean for now, Greek sources, Cadian sources, Hebrew source, that that like to celebrate the great leader this way. And if the, the story of the birth is sort of a, grandizing story about that individual it still doesn't follow that the individual was fiction because the whole point is to make him special from birth because he was such a great leader so like either way i still think you get to check the marker for moses's historicity here does that make sense yeah i agree so his his upbringing is kind of the other big 
I guess, question or problem that some of the, the skeptical scholars have, which again, obviously sounds too good to be true that he's randomly adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. It's what it seems like. And now we're, we're what, basically verse 10 and following at this point, Exodus 2.10 and following. So he then grows up as a privileged youth in the Egyptian educational system. And here's the thing. This one's really easy. This is exactly what they do in the New Kingdom with foreign princes. So beginning with the reign of Thutmosis III, who tells us about doing this, which is roughly 1457 to 1425. He's a candidate for the early date Exodus Pharaoh. Um, but anyway, Thutmosis inaugurated this really clever strategy of taking the sons of the chiefs of the cities that he conquered. They're always called Weru at that point in time, the chiefs, Weru in hieroglyphs, and raising those sons in Egypt and then sending them back as a vassal when they were older to rule locally answering to Egypt, but fully aware of Egyptian ways of doing things, right? They're Egyptianized Canaanites most of the time. And this is doubly clever because they know how Egypt wants to do things, so it's more efficient. But they're also one of our own to the locals who are then hopefully less likely to rebel. The point is, when you bring it now to Moses, who I would argue, again, is in the Ramesside era, so 150 years later or whatever, and you bring it to Moses, he's, they're still doing this policy. So he's not this like random Israelite Semite in the palace. Everyone's going, didn't we kill all those baby boys? You know, like he's just another Canaanite looking guy hanging out in the, you know, in the palace as part of the people being trained up to represent Egypt to their local people. And so it's actually a really nice fit with Egyptian policy. But at first glance, it sounds too good to be true. But if you know the Egyptian data and you know the texts, you know, they do this. We even have kings or rulers, let's call them. Maybe they're more like mayors in our terminology, writing to Pharaoh at different points, like Azira of Amuru, who says, here, I give you my sons for you to basically do as you like, like raise them up and bring them back. Another Semite named Abdiel or Aparel, right? That's the guy we talked about with Joseph last episode. He uh, called himself a child of the nursery in his recently published tomb that we talked about as sort of a showing us that the Joseph narrative isn't impossible because he's a Semite who, you know, is ranked very high as of his year. And he calls himself child of the nursery. And nursery would extend into the educational system. It's sort of a tough term to translate quite right. Like we think nursery, we think, oh, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's in there Sunday mornings for, for church. Right. But we're talking the whole educational system. He calls himself a child of that. So he was apparently one of these guys who was either taken back after a campaign or sent by his father to keep Pharaoh happy. And Hey, Pharaoh's probably able to give him a great education. And Moses is just another one of these. So that's really not too good to be true either. Yeah. I would just comment that this becomes this is still used, this practice, all throughout the ancient East. But even if we just focus on Egypt, classic example of this is with Hadad and Jeroboam, where we have them brought to the Egyptian court. Um, whether, you know, which pharaoh it is, is, is hard to say, whether it's Siamun or not. But they're kept there before they're, you know, eventually brought back to essentially be their allies, the Egyptian allies in, in in Canaan once more. And so that's even a biblical example of a widely known practice in Egypt, but also practiced in, you know, really across the board. I mean, you could point to 
you could point to uh, Agrippa the second in Rome. I mean, so it's it's just something that it makes good. It's good policy. It's so just great policy, yeah. And then I guess as we kind of now wrap up here, as we want to sort of finish with Moses and set up the plagues for next episode too. But this upbringing would make Moses really well qualified to lead the people after they leave Egypt. Like who's who knows how to put together a covenant document? The guy trained by the Egyptians to understand vassal and board treaties, right? Like he's sort of uniquely suited at that point or perfectly suited as perhaps better uh, to do some of the things that he'll do in the latter part of Exodus and throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. And then this too good to be true thing. Why should we not expect great leaders to do great things? Like was Winston Churchill in World War II too good to be true? Is Eisenhower ending one war, keeping us out of any during the Cold War and the nuclear you know, fear? Is that too good to be true? Is Gandhi or Martin Luther King, are they too good to be true? Like, what does that actually mean? We just we just don't trust ancients, I think, is all that phrase means sometimes. Yeah, and I, I think at the minimum, what we can say is, is that the author or authors or redactors, whatever you want to call it when we talk about the Pentateuch, it's they're aware of the need, whether they're aware or they're actually just reflecting definitive history when we talk about Moses, they're aware that, that this character is going to be, he's going to write a, a fair amount <laughs> over the course of these books. In other words, we need to recognize at the very least that if we're reading it just simply as literature, that they're adding this character trait uh, to Moses in these texts to show how he would become a educated and skilled uh, writer later on. And so even if you're just reading it straight as literature it's it's something to 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 note that that's why it's an important part that he's a part of the Egyptian um, the Egyptian court. Another thing, real quick, Exodus five. He asks for time off. You remember that story? He's like, "Hey, we need time off to go worship Yahweh in the desert." There's a a leather roll in the Louvre called aptly the Louvre leather roll, right? Where it, it's written by a stable master of Ramses the second, who says that. Men from Deir el-Medina, who were workers basically building a lot of the tombs down in Thebes, a new kingdom workman's village, in other words, were granted time off from work to go, quote, offer to their God. It's like, oh, well, Moses knows this is a thing they do, because guess what? He grew up in their system, essentially. And so, like, even those little stories, when you know the Egyptology, you're like, hey, wait a second, that sounds a lot like the Louvre leather papyrus or roll. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good point. Yeah, it's, it's it has a, a lot of connections there. I, I would just add, and I know we're, we're wrapping up here, but just to leave our listeners with something to think about in terms of presuppositions with regards to numbers and years. And, and this is something we, we'll develop more later on. We'll probably have a wrap up or talk about some of the chronological things. But both Mark and I, and I'll speak for you, is one big thing is is the number of Israelites that are actually there in the land. And we're we're coming at it from the perspective of that they're fairly low numbers. How low? It's hard to say, but it's, uh, you know, if you just do a a straight multiplication factor of the 600 plus thousand of the just the fighting men, you get 2.5 or 3 million people. Just take um, over Egypt at that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's not, I don't, I don't even Canaan's know. a walk in the park. If you're that right. Big. Right. And, and we can, we can develop that later. Yeah, we will would, definitely, definitely. But I would just say like, you have texts that say, 
that you are the smallest of these seven mighty nations you're about to take over. <laughs> if you just multiply seven times three million or whatever it is, you get 21 million in just Canaan. So there's some, there's some rhetoric there. There's some genre things that we have going on. There's, there. a, there's a vocab issue there. Like before we get into it in a future episode, just there are biblical reasons to rethink those numbers, not just modern skepticism or archaeological. Right, which is of course important too. But do they, what does the term Elif translated a thousand mean? It's a homonym with some other terms, and it, a good Bible will footnote all this now. So it's not just that we're being skeptical. There are good biblical reasons to question whether we're translating that correctly. Right. And we'll we'll talk about that in the future. I just want it for our listeners to to acknowledge that that is a, an issue with regardless of when you're thinking about the the Exodus and to put our um uh, a, a, a quick overview of where we would fall on that there. The other thing is, the other thing is, is in terms of the chronology. Um, and, and we're going to, again, talk about this more, but there is the, the one issue that is connected with the late date that I think we can address later on is how do we deal with the question of the Pharaoh um, who did not know Joseph and, and Ramses. And I, I think there's a number of different ways to, to get at it. One of the um, the main things is how do we, and this is why I'm bringing it up now, how do we address or approach the question of Moses's three sets of 40? Is he actually 120 when he dies? Is that something that's typological? Um, and that's that's one issue because you know he has a set of 40 when he's in when he's in Egypt. 40 in the wilderness and another 40 ish when he's um, when he's in the wilderness again and this in this case with with the Israelites and so that's a, another factor in involved here do you have to look for 40 years between you know Ramsey's reign or his father's reign but it is an issue that should be addressed um, in in the context of this chronological discussion because uh, clearly this Pharaoh, who did not know uh, Joseph is a different Pharaoh than the one who did know Joseph and seems to be a different Pharaoh than the one whom Moses talks to later on, because it specifically says that that Pharaoh had died when Moses comes back to, when Moses comes back to, to the land. And so we'll, we'll, we'll delve into those. I just want to acknowledge those chronological as well as numeric number issues, whether we're talking about the number of people or the dates themselves. We'll, we'll, we'll approach that in a, in a future episode. Yeah, I think the plan, maybe to tease it, would be the plagues next episode with, we could probably combine it with the chronology, you know, to shoot for that 50-minute-ish, hour-ish episode. And then uh, and then the next one could be some of the geography and the route and the Sea of Reeds and the Sinai issues, Mount Sinai and all that. So... Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. And we hope you've enjoyed this second part of Egypt and the Bible uh, with uh, myself, Chris McKinney, and Mark Chanzen. Um, and we hope you keep listening. We'd love for you to give us uh, a rating, leave us a note about what you think about the podcast. Thank you thank you for those who have sent emails. We love that, uh, that feedback. So please continue to do so. And until next time, uh, in the words of Kyle Keimer, keep digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.